Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Aspasia, as some might say, was held in high favor by Pericles because of her rare political wisdom. Socrates sometimes came to see her with his disciples, and his intimate friends brought their wives to her to hear her discourse although she presided over a business that was anything but honest or even reputable since she kept a house of young courtesans. However, the affection which Pericles had for Aspasia seems to have been rather of an amatory sort, for his own wife was near of kin to him. Since their married life was not agreeable, he legally bestowed her upon another man with her own consent, and himself took Aspasia and loved her exceedingly. Twice a day, as they say, on going out and on coming in from the marketplace, he would salute her with a loving kiss. The Life of Pericles in Parallel Lives by Plutarch, 2nd century CE. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 5.2, Aspasia of Miletus, Notorious Woman of Athens. It's become somewhat standard for me to start these series with someone about whom we know very little. Aspasia of Miletus is one of the most famous and influential women in the history of classical Greece, yet we still know almost nothing about her. We have nothing surviving from her directly, and most of our sources about her were either written long after her death or came from contemporary comedies. In this story, the likes of Aristophanes are almost as important as proper historians like Plutarch and Xenophon. As you can imagine, much of what we hear about her in the sources is contradictory, and a lot of it isn't especially complimentary. There is no full biography written about her, either then or in the modern era, and that's simply because it would be impossible to do so. There is just about enough for a half-hour podcast episode, not for a book. Indeed, the only book I could find dedicated to Aspasia, Prisoner of History by Madeline Henry, covers all that we know about her life in just 19 rather small pages. This is all incredibly frustrating, because what we know about Aspasia, as we'll see in this episode, is absolutely fascinating. 
But before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters that keep the show on the road. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter, where we post some extra stuff to complement the episode. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Classical Athens is one of human history's most storied and influential places and eras. The cradle of our modern democracy. The place where we got the very word. By the 5th century BCE, Athens had become arguably the preeminent state in all of Greece, and it had won that status on the battlefield. It had been Athenian soldiers that, in 490 BCE, had fought off a Persian invasion at the Battle of Marathon. Ten years later, after the Spartan-led Greek armies had been defeated at the pass at Thermopylae, a fleet predominantly made up of Athenian ships destroyed the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. Athens was evacuated and then sacked by the Persians, but this would prove to be Pyrrhic revenge, as the Persian armies were defeated at Plataea and Mycale, again with Athenian involvement. Persia had been defeated but it still represented a significant potential threat to the Greek cities. It had vast wealth, manpower and other resources that Greece could only dream of, and it would surely only be a matter of time before they would strike for a third occasion. With that in mind, Athens set up the Delian League, a military alliance of states in eastern Greece and the islands in the Ionian Sea dedicated to continuing to take the fight to Persia. When it was set up, membership was voluntary, with the Allies contributing men and ships, but mostly money, to a communal pot that the Alliance could use to prosecute the war. For the most part, Athens did the fighting, and her Allies paid for it. As you can imagine, Athens used the situation to her own advantage, which would, in turn, cause resentment to build among her Allies. One of these Allies was the city of Miletus. Located on the western coast of Anatolia in modern-day Turkey, Miletus had been one of the wealthiest and most influential Greek cities in Ionia before it was conquered by the Persians in the 6th century BCE. Liberated following the end of the Seco-Grecan-Persian War, Miletus joined the Delian League along with many of its neighbours as a guarantee of protection of its newfound liberty. However, its relationship with its so-called ally Athens was hardly one of equals and there was a great deal of unrest on the island in the 460s and 450s BCE, as pro- and anti-Athenian factions battled for control. This turbulence saw a young woman flee her homeland and emigrate to Athens, Aspasia. We know very little about her background, 
only that she was the daughter of a man called Axiochus, and may have also been sister-in-law to an exiled and discredited Athenian aristocrat named Alcibiades, the grandfather of the more famous and notorious Athenian general of the same name. Despite having an Athenian relative by marriage and being of aristocratic stock, Aspasia was a metic, or resident alien. This status meant that she had some of the rights of an Athenian citizen, but not full rights. Metics had to pay special taxes and could not participate in the assembly or own land. Athenian citizenship was a special protected status, and its privileges were denied to metics like Aspasia. Crucially, metics were not allowed to marry Athenian citizens. There would be no half-bloods here. These draconian restrictions had been brought in because of the influx of people, like Aspasia, heading to Athens following the end of the war. Instability across the Greek world was seeing large numbers gravitate towards the city. Without the ability to marry a wealthy citizen or any wealth supporter, Aspasia was forced to rely on her own wits and charm to survive. She taught rhetoric and philosophy. Plato even claims that she schooled Socrates in rhetoric, which is quite the claim to fame. This was not the only way that she supported herself. She was also a hetera. These were courtesans, foreign-born women who sold sex and companionship to wealthy Athenian men. They inhabited a higher station than prostitutes. To be a hetera, you had to be educated, cultured, and witty. You had to know how to hold the metaphorical knife and fork properly, and be able to hold your own intellectually with the men. Aspasia ruled the roost in this world, and powerful Athenian men flocked to her salon for stimulating conversation, and, of course, to enjoy the attentions and pleasures of the beautiful and charming Aspasia. And you had to have your wits about you when conversing with her. Roman writers Cicero and Quintilian record a conversation that Aspasia had with the historian Xenophon and his wife. Here is the conversation. Aspasia is the one talking, and Xenophon and his wife are the ones replying. Quote, Please tell me, madam, if your neighbour had a better gold ornament than you have, would you prefer that one or your own? That one, she replied. Now, if she had dresses and other feminine finery more expensive than you have, would you prefer yours or hers? Hers, of course, she replied. Well, now, if she had a better husband than you have, would you prefer your husband or hers? At this, the woman blushed, but Aspasia then began to speak to Xenophon. I wish you would tell me, Xenophon, she said, if your neighbour had a better horse than yours, would you prefer your horse or his? His was his answer. And if he had a better farm than you have, which farm would you prefer to have? The better farm, naturally, he said. Now if he had a better wife than you have, would you prefer yours or his? At this, Xenophon too himself was silent. Then Aspasia said, Since both of you have failed to tell me the only thing I wish to hear, I myself will tell you what you are both thinking. That is, you, madam, wish to have the best husband, and you, Xenophon, desire above all things to have the finest wife. Therefore, unless you can contrive that there be no better man or finer woman on earth, you will certainly always be in dire want of what you consider best. 
namely that you be the husband of the very best of wives, and that she be wedded to the very best of men. This conversation, laid out in a manner she perhaps taught to Socrates, demonstrates two things. One, watch your husband if he is talking to Aspasia. And two, Aspasia saw the relationship between man and woman as one of equals. Now, men and women in Athens were decidedly not so in terms of legal status. But for a relationship to be successful, it had to be between two people who were a match for each other in every respect. Aspasia would need to find quite a man to keep up with her, and she found him in Pericles. Pericles is one of the capital G, capital M, great men of history. Part of a unique group that gave their name to an entire age, the golden age of Athens was the golden age of Pericles. He was the platonic ideal of a Greek aristocrat. Well-born, wealthy and well-educated, he quickly rose through the ranks of the Athenian assembly to become one of its most influential members. Modern Western democracies predominantly run on a representative model, whereby we vote for someone, an NP, congressman, senator, etc., who will govern on our behalf. The Athenian assembly was somewhat different. It was direct democracy, where anyone and everyone well, everyone who was a male citizen, could show up to the assembly, have their say, and vote. Theoretically, then, Pericles' high birth and station could be as much a millstone as a leg up. Rich, entitled aristocrats were often viewed with suspicion. Did they really hold the democratic ideals of Athens in sufficient esteem? But Pericles was a man blessed with both blue blood and the common touch. He could speak to the wills, desires and concerns of every rung of the social ladder, and this propelled him to a leadership position within Athens. At some point, early in his career, he married one of his relatives, we don't know her name, and had two sons, but the match was not successful and ended in divorce. We don't know exactly how he met Aspasia, but it's not hard to imagine how a successful courtesan may meet one of Athens' most prominent citizens. Dating their relationship is extremely difficult and requires a bit of guesswork, but most historians start it from around 450 BCE. The sources describe Pericles as being absolutely besotted by Aspasia. In the extract from Plutarch that I read at the start of the episode, the historian states that he, quote, loved her exceedingly while Heracleides Ponticus, a 4th century BCE Athenian philosopher, said that he, quote, lived a life of pleasure and squandered the greater part of his property on Aspasia. The tone of the sources is predominantly negative on Aspasia. She is seen as a temptress, a malign influence on the great man. Before he had met the Miletan courtesan, he was seen as a man of modest tastes. Now, he began to sup of the more extravagant luxuries, egged on by his new paramour. Antisthenes, another philosopher and the father of cynicism, criticises Pericles for, quote, going in and out of her house twice a day just to say hello to her. To love a woman to the point where, even though she was a foreigner and a courtesan, one without compunction, made a public show of it. That was a liberty and a nonconformist way of behaving that was found truly shocking. 
Pericles is portrayed here as a lovesick puppy, strung along by a cunning, intelligent woman well-versed in using her beauty to her own advantage. This is the portrayal we'll see quite a bit of throughout this series, but it's interesting to note that she doesn't have female competition here. Pericles was unmarried throughout his relationship with Aspasia, but she is still portrayed in this negative light. This is for a few reasons, the first and most important of which is her status as a metic, as a foreigner. The barrier to their relationship was not the existence of a wife, it was her social status. She may have had all the education and upbringing to mix with the Athenian upper crust, but she wasn't from Athens, she wasn't a citizen, and therefore she couldn't be trusted. She had to be a malign influence, the shifty foreigner. She was portrayed as a homewrecker. Pericles had divorced his wife, a woman of good solid Athenian stock, for the green pastures of a filthy foreigner. Now, this was likely unfounded. Pericles' divorce had occurred many years before he got involved with Aspasia, but then again, when did the truth ever get in the way of a good attack line? Her critics also saw Aspasia's public role in her salon as flaunting her newfound position as, effectively, the First Lady of Athens. Concubines and mistresses should be shadowy figures. They should be discreet and be enjoyed in private. Yet Pericles was very open about his relationship with Aspasia, and though he did get some criticism for this, the lion's share of the vitriol was reserved for Aspasia. The playwright Cratinus called her a, quote, dog-eyed whore, and, quote, the child of unnatural lust, a prostitute past shaming. While Plutarch alleges that many compared her to Thargelia, a renowned Hetera like Aspasia, and gold digger, who was married 14 times to influential Greeks, and passed on vital information to the king of Persia. So as we can see, Aspasia was seen as a malign influence on an otherwise great man, and nowhere is this more evident than during the Samian War. The island of Samos is just off the coast of modern-day Turkey, and then was a member of the Delian League, and was in dispute with Miletus, Aspasia's homeland. Athens, at Pericles' urging, took the side of Miletus, which led to war with Samos. Athens won pretty easily, but the conflict nearly brought them into conflict with both Sparta and Persia, which would have escalated things somewhat. Given Aspasia's connection to Miletus, it's unsurprising that this was quickly labelled as a war of passion for Pericles. That his lust for his mistress had led Athenian men to war against a former ally, a war that had nearly exploded the tinderbox that was mid-5th century Greece. To some, she was cast as Helen, as the face that had launched, well, not, not a thousand Athenian ships, but certainly much of the fleet. To her opponents, Aspasia was a clear and present danger, not just to Athenian national security, but the entire social order. As a foreigner, she wasn't supposed to have any influence over Athenian affairs. She was shattering not one, but two glass ceilings, and was doing so with seeming impunity. In historian Elizabeth Abbott's words, she was, quote, a revolutionary disguised as a seductress. And this negative perception of Aspasia only increased when Athens became embroiled in one of the classical age's largest and most significant conflicts, 
the Peloponnesian War. The story of how classical Greece's two great superpowers and their allies went to war and beat the ever-loving crap out of each other is a really good one and not one for this podcast. To summarise, Sparta, worried about the growing Athenian hegemony in Greece, invaded Athenian territory, launching a war that would embroil the whole of Greece and the Aegean for the next three decades. This is true Cold War gone hot territory. Two regional superpowers and their allies slugging it out for control over the Greek peninsula. Sparta had the superior army, and so was able to invade Athenian territory at will, but Athens had strong walls. Athens had the superior navy, but could not win the war with sea power alone. Over the course of the war, Pericles' enemies grew in strength. He was cast as a tyrant, as having usurped the democratic ideals of Athens to make them no better than the oligarchs and kings to whom they were opposed. And Aspasia was the evil voice in his ear, the devil on his shoulder, the warmonger, the Helen of Troy. In his play, The Acarnians, Aristophanes lays the blame for the war squarely at the feet of Aspasia, who had used her womanly wiles to guide Pericles into launching Athens into war. He has his protagonist allege that the war began because... Quote, some young drunkards go to Megara and carry off the courtesan Simetha. The Megarians, hurt the quick, run off in turn with two of Aspasia's harlots. And so, for three wanton women, Greece is set ablaze. Then Pericles, aflame with ire on his Olympian height, let loose the lightning, cause the thunder to roll, and upset Greece. And from that time, there was the horrible clatter of arms everywhere. Greek theatre was as much a part of the conversation as debates in the assembly. And here, in the court of public opinion, Aspasia is portrayed as a brothel madam who would plunge Athens into an unnecessary war for the sake of a couple of prostitutes. And Pericles, who was supposed to hold Athenian interests paramount in his mind, was instead enslaved by his desires and led around by the nose by a foreign harlot. All of this eventually led her to being brought to trial for impiety. In short, for pimping. Plutarch writes in his Life of Pericles, Aspasia was put on trial for impiety. Her Mippus, the comic poet being her prosecutor, who alleged further against her that she received freeborn women into a place of assignation for Pericles and Diopathes brought in a bill providing for the public impeachment of those who did not believe in the gods, or who taught doctrines regarding the heavens, directing suspicion against Pericles by means of Anaxagoras. The people accepted with delight these slanders, and so while they were in this mood a bill was passed, on motion of Draconides, that Pericles should deposit his accounts of public monies with the assembly, and that the jurors should decide upon his case with ballots, which had lain upon the altar of the goddess on the Acropolis. Pericles begged of Aspasia by shedding copious tears at the trial, and by entreating the jurors, and he feared for Anaxagoras so much that he sent him away from the city. 
Pericles was a famously stoic and unflappable man. For him to be seen weeping and begging jurors to acquit his mistress is quite the sight, and a sign of just how much he must have loved her. He is recorded as having cried on only one other occasion, and that was the death of his son. This is some of the best evidence that we have of the strength of Pericles' love for Aspasia. He was willing to supplicate himself and spend a tremendous amount of capital to protect his mistress. Not many men in his position would have done the same at this time. And it is that very strength of feeling that aroused so much scorn. Powerful men were expected to have mistresses and have an almost detached relationship with their wives. They were supposed to on them, even love them, but be infatuated with them? That was all a bit common. This is why so many of Pericles' opponents make a big deal of the fact that Pericles kissed Aspasia every day. Now, this will be seen as positive press. Then, it was all a bit gauche. A sign of femininity in the first citizen of Athens. They needed a strong, virile man, not some love-struck teenager. Something that's often missed here is that Pericles had to speak on behalf of Aspasia, as she was not permitted to speak on her own behalf. As a foreigner, she didn't have that right. This trial forever bound Pericles and Aspasia together. Although he was still unable to marry her, she was recognised as his mate, a kind of official mistress, or maîtresse en titre, as the French would later term it. Plutarch calls it a, quote, romantic attachment, which I think is rather sweet. Pericles and Aspasia had at least one child together, a son called, imaginatively, Pericles, but that didn't come with some of the controversies that we'll see later with the children of mistresses. Pericles may be the first man in Athens, but he wasn't the king. His son would not be inheriting the city. And more to the point, Pericles had two other sons, both older and both legitimate. Their younger half-brother posed no real threat to their wealth or position. The Peloponnesian War had now raged for over a year, and it fell to Pericles to give the annual funeral oration. This was a yearly tradition where those that had fallen in the service of the city were honoured at a grand public funeral. The speech that Pericles gave, which is recorded in full by Thucydides in his History of the Peloponnesian War, is one of the most famous speeches in all of European ancient history. It takes the form of a eulogy, not just for the glorious dead soldiers of Athens, but to the city itself. Now the speech is too long for me to read in full, so I'll give you some choice quotes. Quote, Our government does not copy our neighbours, but is an example to them. It is true that we are called a democracy, for the administration is in the hands of the many and not the few. Our city is thrown open to the world, and we never expel a foreigner and prevent him from seeing or learning anything of which the secret, if revealed to an enemy, might profit him. We do not rely on management or trickery, but upon our own hearts and hands. We have compelled every land and every sea to open a path for our valour and have everywhere planted external memorials of our friendship and of our enmity. Such is the city for whose sake these men have nobly fought and died. They could not bear the thought that she might be taken from them, and that every one of us who survive should gladly toil on her behalf. The speech finishes, 
To you who are the sons and brothers of the departed, I see that the struggle to emulate them will be an arduous one. For all men praise the dead, and however preeminent your virtue may be, I do not say even to approach them and avoid living their rivals and detractors. But when a man is out of the way, the honour and goodwill which he receives are unalloyed. And if I am to speak of womanly virtues to those of you who will henceforth be widows, let me sum them up in one short admonition. To a woman to show more weakness than is natural to her sex is a great glory, and not to be talked about for good or for evil among men. I have paid the required tribute, in obedience to the law, making use of such fitting words as I had. The tribute of the deeds has been paid in part, for the dead have them in deeds, and it remains only that their children should be maintained at the public charge until they are grown up. This is the solid prize with which, as a garland, Athens crowns her sons living and dead, after a struggle like theirs. For where the rewards of virtue are greatest, there the noblest citizens are enlisted in the service of the state. And now, when you have truly lamented, everyone his own dead, you may depart. It's stirring stuff, and easy to see how Pericles managed to become and maintain his position as first man in Athens with oratory like this. This speech would go on to inspire many others. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln copied its structure for the Gettysburg Address. Now you may wonder why I've given this speech so much airtime. What's it got to do with Aspasia? Well, at least according to Plato, she wrote it. In his Menexenus, a dialogue between the great philosopher Socrates and Menexenus, a fellow Athenian councilman, he has Socrates say, quote, I heard Aspasia composing a funeral oration about these very dead. For she had been told, as you were saying, that Athenians were going to choose a speaker. And she repeated to me the sort of speech which he should deliver, partly improvising and partly from previous thought, putting together the fragments of the funeral oration which Pericles spoke, but which, as I believe, she composed. Now this claim of authorship is highly disputed. And yet the very fact that she is linked to this historic oration is clearly a sign that she was considered a writer and public speaker of some repute. This is indeed the same dialogue in which Plato describes Aspasia as Socrates' teacher. Aspasia was a notorious woman whose reputation preceded her, but clearly it was a more complex reputation from which many have given her credit. In 430 BCE, one year after Aspasia's trial, a terrible plague swept through Athens. Pericles' strategy of pulling everything and everyone behind the city walls to defend against Spartan invasion led to overcrowding and disease. The death toll was catastrophic. Between one in three and one in four Athenians died, including both of Pericles' legitimate sons and most of his family and friends. It was apocalyptic stuff, with a death toll that only the Black Death could rival. In such a crisis, in such an atmosphere of fear, grief and pain, it's only natural for people to lash out, to find someone to blame. And Pericles took the brunt of it. He was ousted from office and charged with corruption. After a few months, though, the Athenians came to their senses and it appeared that things were finally looking up for Aspasia. 
Though the child of an Athenian citizen, Pericles the Younger would normally have been classed as a foreigner due to his mother's parentage. But with all of Pericles' other sons now dead, an exception was made for him, and he did become a citizen of Athens. He served in the Athenian military and achieved public office, opportunities his mother would never be able to obtain. The plague, though, continued to rampage through the city like a bull in a china shop. And in the following year, 429 BCE, it carried off its greatest victim. Pericles, the leader of Athens, died, leaving a traumatised city feeling leaderless and rudderless. For Aspasia, this was a hugely dangerous moment. She had never been popular. It had only been the veneration of Pericles that had protected her, and even then she had been castigated in the theatre and prosecuted in the courts. She was a wealthy woman, her son had inherited his father's estate, but she knew that she would likely not survive long without a protector. This probably explains why, not long after Pericles' death, she shacked up with a man called Lysicles. Plutarch describes him as, quote, Lysicles, the sheep dealer, a man of low birth and nature, came to be the first man at Athens by living with Aspasia after the death of Pericles. It was considered all a bit grubby, too soon, had she no shame. Unlike Pericles, who was quite a bit older than Aspasia, Lysicles was close to her in age and they had likely known each other for a long time. Some sources claim that she married Lysicles, but this seems rather unlikely given her status as a foreigner. What we do know is that he was a relatively obscure figure, whose star rose immensely due to his relationship with Aspasia. If Pericles had elevated her status, then her star shone brightly on Lysicles. They had a son together, Poristes, but Lysicles would be killed in action the following year in 428. Aspasia was now back at square one, with an illegitimate child and yet more flack being thrown at her unprotected flank. She was no longer as young as she had once been. Her famous beauty was waning, and though she was as sharp as ever, she no longer had enough weapons in her arsenal to survive in the cut and thrust of Athenian political life. Her reputation had finally overcome her. From here, she fades into obscurity. We have literally no idea what happened to her. Whether she married someone obscure, whether she went into exile, or even if she just died. It's possible that she went to live with her elder son, Pericles the Younger, but if she had, then there probably would be some record of it. He had his own political ambitions, and she was not the lineage he would have wanted to emphasise. And there, we have to end Aspasia's story. The trail runs cold. As we've seen from most of the sources that I've been quoting, history has not been kind to Aspasia. Since the majority of the surviving references about her are from Greek comedies, the overwhelming image that has survived of her is highly sexualized. As a brothel madam, as a wanton harlot, she ensnared a great man and led him to ruin, and along with him the great city of Athens, which would go on to lose the Peloponnesian War. Many of the later sources, including by philosophers like Plato, also run with this narrative. Aeschines of Svetos was one of the first historians, though, to buck this trend, and he was followed by Xenophon, who, in his treatment of Socrates, portrays Aspasia as wise, cultured, and intelligent. Moving into the Middle Ages, she was held up as a heroine by Eloise, 
who in one of her first letters to her lover, Peter Abelard, identifies the love story between Aspasia and Pericles, and specifically the discussion she had with Xenophon and his wife that I read earlier, as a persuasive argument for why their forbidden love was good and not sinful. For Eloise, Aspasia was a heroine for love-struck women everywhere. The first surviving likeness of Aspasia comes from the French Revolution-era artist Marie-Genevieve Bouliard, who has held Aspasia up as one of history's great outsiders. Her image is bare-chested, but not erotic. Instead of gazing seductively at the viewer, she is looking into a handheld mirror, a symbol of self-knowledge common in the depiction of her supposed pupil, Socrates. This painting hung in the Louvre and Fontainebleau before reaching its current home in Arras. I'll put the image up on my socials. The Victorians, perhaps predictably, entirely de-sexualised Aspasia, placing her in men's spaces in a rather modest and chaste manner. She appears here and there, but almost always at the side of Pericles, the great man taking up all the limelight. The 20th century saw the sexualised image of Aspasia re-emerged, sometimes in a condescending, critical manner, others in a more empowering way. Her sexual and philosophical images combining to create a kind of proto-feminist. In her book, Prisoner of History, Madeleine Henry describes this vision as that of the, quote, happy hooker, a ball-breaker, but also a man-maker. As with so many other women covered in this podcast, she appears in artist Judy Chicago's dinner party, sat in between the poet Sappho and the Celtic rebel Boudicca. Now that is quite the crowd. The story of Aspasia is, in many ways, a microcosm of the difficulties of studying ancient history. We know some things, but there are a lot of blanks. And where there are blanks there is the tendency and desire to fill them in. That's why the portrayal and view of Aspasia has evolved and changed so much over the years. The reason why I started this season with her is that, in many ways, she is the platonic ideal of the mistress in history. Came from obscurity, got involved with one of history's quote-unquote great men, caused a stir, and made her mark. In a culture that celebrated women who remained silent and in the shadows, she shone in its most public settings. In a city famed for its oratory and philosophy, she is said to have written its greatest speech and taught its greatest philosopher. Not bad for a refugee from Ionia. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.